came out with sets of numbers and I plotted them on pieces of paper. Welcome to the Astrophys Podcasts. My name is Brendan O'Brien. Today is Thursday the 24th of August 2017. Each fortnight we have a special guest in the fields of radio astronomy, optical astronomy, space science or particle physics. And this week our special guest is Dr Haley Bignall, who is an astronomer for Australia's CSIRO in their Astronomy and Space Science Division. She's been working with a team that's just had a fabulous paper published on scintillation of quasars, where the team used the Australian Telescope Compact Array and the 10-metre Keck Telescope to give us a new understanding of the nature of interstellar space. And that's followed by Dr Ian Musgrave of Astroblogger fame. Ian will tell us what's up, Doc, what's up in the night sky, and I'll be giving a brief news roundup as usual. So let's cross over to Perth in Western Australia now for today's show. Hello, Hayley. Hello, Brendan. Today we are speaking with Dr Hayley Bignall, and Hayley is an astronomer for Australia's CSIRO in their Astronomy and Space Science Division, CAS. After her studies... She spent five years working at the Joint Institute for VLBI in Europe and is now based in Perth, Australia. After spending about seven years at the International Centre for Radio Astronomy Research, ICRA, at Curtin University, she joined CSIRO in 2016. So tell us about where you grew up as a child, please, Haley. How dark were the skies where you live? And tell us a little about your school days and how you became interested in space and science and what prompted you to study the sciences. Okay. I grew up in country South Australia in a town called Murray Bridge. The skies were not especially dark, although I think there was generally less light pollution than in larger cities. So I do remember occasionally sitting outside with my grandparents in their backyard on a warm summer evening and just watching the stars and planets. I was nine years old during the last apparition of Halley's Comet, as miserable as the appearance was. I remember my mother waking me up in the early hours of the morning to go outside and see this. It's still pretty special. And also I'd been given a couple of books about Halley's Comet, which were perhaps more interesting than the view of the comet itself. So learning about how we know about its orbit, how the separate ionised gas and dust trails form, for example, and the Giotto spacecraft that was launched to study the comet around that time. So um, perhaps partly because of this, I became interested in astronomy and space science, uh, perhaps a bit more than just stargazing itself. 
So I was quite mathematically inclined at school, so I tended to be inspired by these big questions of cosmology and how the universe works. So I suppose that all led me towards studying science and physics at university. Fantastic. Now, your first science degree was actually a BSc double major in theoretical and experimental physics. Then you did an honours BSc in experimental physics and was awarded first class honours for your research project into radar studies of meteor trails in the upper atmosphere. Can you tell us about meteor trails, please? Yeah, so I guess an interest in meteors actually kind of follows on naturally from an interest in comets in some ways. So meteoroids are dust grains or rocks in space, and they're mostly debris from comets or asteroids. So particles left by a comet, left behind by comets as they orbit the sun, they orbit the sun in the same path as their parent body and become meteors or shooting stars when they enter the Earth's atmosphere. So they can appear as the shooting stars we see in the night sky sometimes. So in other words, the Earth is crossing the orbit of the dusty debris stream and that's why at certain times of the year we see meteor showers and predictable times. If these rocky bodies aren't completely burnt up or ablated in the atmosphere, they land as meteorites. So there's, there's the three names there. Meteoroids are the particles in space. Meteors are the atmospheric phenomenon and meteorites are, are the rocks that land on Earth, finally, in some cases. So the anyway, the meteors travelling through the atmosphere leave behind a trail of ionised charged particles and that trail then diffuses via a process called ambipolar diffusion. And the ionised trails can be detected with radar pulsive radio waves sent up into the atmosphere. So for my honours project, I used data from a radar array operated by the University of Adelaide to, uh, to measure the exponential decay in amplitude that of a pulsed radar signal that corresponds to the diffusion of the meteor trail. So the diffusion coefficient depends on the particle density and temperature of the of the upper atmosphere where the trail is formed, typically 80 kilometres above the Earth's surface. So the height of the trail, you could determine that independently through radar ranging. And in principle, the measurement of the diffusion coefficient gives you a way of measuring temperature fluctuations high in the atmosphere. So I guess my honours project didn't really get far enough along with data analysis to, to look for such variations. But uh, I did have, at the time, probably the best available data on these diffusion coefficients as a, as a function of height in the atmosphere and uh, also investigated the likely effect of the Earth's magnetic field on the measured diffusion coefficients, and that was just based on some recently published simulation results by, by another group. And I found that essentially the magnetic field doesn't have a, a significant effect except at quite high altitude where the particle density is very low in the atmosphere. So it was, it was an interesting project in atmospheric physics, I suppose. And for my PhD, though, I decided to move a bit beyond that into astrophysics. Fantastic, and the University of Adelaide just happened to have a spare radar. Yes, the atmospheric physics group rated at the time and still do several different radar arrays. So yes, we used one of them to study reflections from meteor trails. Fantastic. Then you went on and did your PhD in astronomy and astrophysics, and your thesis was radio variability and the interstellar scintillation of blazars. Now, we're going to be talking about scintillation later, but right now, could you tell us about blazars? What are they and what's their life cycle and how do we detect and identify and classify them? Blazar is actually a term that astronomers have been using for the phenomenon observed when a radio galaxy has a jet 
directed toward us. So a radio galaxy is an active galaxy with with jets of particles moving at relativistic speeds being ejected out from the poles of a central nucleus, which is powered by accretion of material onto a supermassive black hole. So very energetic sources. And when we view these powerful galaxies end on, or we're looking down this jet, what what we observe is generally dominated by the very compact, bright emission close to the base of the jet where it forms. So this can be highly time variable and enhanced due to the effects of relativistic beaming. So the emission comes from plasma traveling in our general direction at close to the speed of light. And we see enhancements due to this effect. So those are actually classified purely on observational properties. By definition, it's a compact radio source, and it's often associated with high-energy emission, X-ray and gamma-ray emission that has been detected by by satellite and often identified at optical wavelengths as a compact quasi-stellar object, uh, usually with high redshift, so indicating the object is at large distance. Yeah, they generally show variability in their brightness with time on a on a large range of time scales and all observed wavelengths. And some of this variability is intrinsic to the source, so perhaps due to the formation of shocks in the jet due to injection of highly energetic accelerated particles. And they collide as the plasma travels outwards. And some variability appears due to propagation effects. So that's, for example, the scintillation that we'll discuss later. So after your doctorate, Haley, you spent five years working at the Joint Institute for Very Long Baseline Interferometry, the VLBI, in Dwingaloo in the Netherlands in Europe. Now, can you tell us how that came about and how you adapted to language and cultural differences and what you did there in Dwingaloo? My first job after my PhD was a, as a support scientist at Jive, which is an acronym within an acronym, it's a pretty cool one, but Jive is the Joint Institute for BLBI in Europe and BLBI itself is very long baseline interferometry. I had done some work with, on BLBI data during my PhD, yep. um, so as a yeah, position at Jive was a as the hub of VLBI in Europe was a fairly natural option for me. My PhD supervisor, for example, already had some connections with researchers over there, some collaborations going on and so on. So, yes, I was keen to, to go there. I'll explain a bit more about how VLBI works shortly. But so in my job there, I spent about 50% of my time on astronomical research. So for the most part, that was related to similar topics that I studied for my PhD. Yep. And the other 50% of my time was supporting the, the data processor of the European VLBI network at Dwingelo, which is a rather quaint little village in the northern part of the Netherlands. So it's also the site of an historical radio telescope yep. uh, and around which a fairly large astronomical research organisation has grown. So Jive and it's a larger sister institute, Astron, on that site. It's a very international institute, in fact. And so the working language is English. Yep. So that made it fairly easy for me from that point of view, the, uh, the culture shock of moving to the Netherlands wasn't, wasn't too great. And say in any case, Dutch and Australian cultures have a fair bit in common. So I did attempt to learn some Dutch, but never got very proficient at it, I'm sorry to say. But I made some really great friends there. It was a quite exciting place to work. The point of BLBI is to achieve very high angular resolution and highly accurate Position measurement by using a number of radio telescopes 
that are separated by large distances. So in the case of the, the EBN uh, covering Europe as well as extending uh, to China and South Africa, yep. the larger the separation between antennas, the smaller angular scales on the sky can be measured and imaged. So this is useful for applications such as measuring motions of objects in our galaxy like pulsars or stars to determine their distance in some cases through parallax measurements and answer questions about their formation and it can also be used to measure for example expansion of supernova remnants and also the structure and motion of jets in active galactic nuclei blazars that I mentioned before. So people People also use the LBI to measure the orbital motions of masers, which are essentially like microwave-length lasers in space um, around stars in our galaxy, but also around supermassive black holes in other galaxies. So you can actually use that to determine the mass of the black hole, the centres of distant galaxies, which is very cool. So the LBI has quite some diverse and, and far-reaching applications. I've only mentioned a few, but... As a support scientist at JIVE, part of my job was to verify the quality of the EBN data after correlation, so after the data was combined from the various telescopes, and to help astronomers optimise the scientific outcomes from their data. So anyone can apply for time on the, <laughs> the European BLBI network. The proposal is to be evaluated by an expert committee to, to decide which ones get the requested time, and that's also how the Australian BLBI network works and, uh, and others. So, yes, so I got to, to do some fun things while I was there. Fantastic, Hayley. So, in layman's terms, you're using mathematics to turn a lot of small telescopes into one giant telescope. Yes, exactly. So, that's what the correlator to does. In fact, it multiplies the uh, signals together from each pair of antennas, and, and we can use that to make an image of the sky with very high angular resolution. Awesome. Now back to your career, working with those unique skills, you continued at Curtin as a senior research officer and used your VLBI experience in support of the VLBI operations there and you facilitated high-speed electronic transfer of recorded data between those radio telescopes and the supercomputer facility. Now, we've truly entered this era of big data with instruments generating terabytes of data each day, even with the SKA precursors. So the question, I think, Haley, is... How can we effectively interrogate such increasingly huge volumes of data to extract that knowledge that we want to get? Yeah, so that's a good question. So oh, just to mention, I, I've sort of been doing BLBI support work, so managing the correlation of data from the Australian Long Baseline Array through the course of my previous position as well, yep. part of my so, but yeah, to answer your, your question, uh, I mean, advances in computing power and network speed have, of course, helped with handling the large data volumes that we're dealing with. And after the initial signal processing or uh, correlation or combination of the array data, I guess that's where the clever algorithms are really needed to get the most value out of the output data. And so if you know what you're looking for, of course, you can process the data in a particular way to optimise for that. 
Well, something I became interested in, if you don't know what you're looking for, it can be a little bit more challenging. Yeah. For example, I've been involved in some planning for transient surveys and so on. And if you want to, for example, image the whole available field of view of your radio telescope and search for time variable or transient sources on various time scales, then that's going to be quite challenging, especially with the next generation telescopes that have just so many array elements and such a large field of view it's already a challenge so that just the data volumes and sheer numbers of objects that will be found in the new surveys also mean that we can't do things the old-fashioned interactive way that might have been possible in the past so we'll, we'll really need to utilize machine learning and also citizen science is playing a role for some applications that is farming out the images or data for analysis by a large number of people So yeah, there are various approaches, but in general, to make things work, I think you need teams of software engineers and astronomers to work together to solve these big data challenges. Very good. You mentioned citizen science. I know that there's a lot of school children making some really fantastic contributions to the Galaxy Zoo projects. Yeah, that's fantastic. It's not something I've been directly involved with, but yes, it's really impressive. Fantastic. Now, you're now with CSIRO, CAS, over in Perth. So let's talk about your current research. You've just had a fabulous paper published on scintillation of quasars, where your team used ATCA, the Australian Telescope Compact Array, and the 10-metre Keck Telescope to give us new knowledge about interstellar space. And first of all, what are quasars? And could you describe ATCA for us? And what did you discover? And what was your role in this research, please, Haley? Yeah, so actually we talk about blazars and quasars almost interchangeably. I mentioned blazars before. Um, so quasars, it's a contraction of quasi-stellar radio sources that was coined about 50 years ago with their discovery. So that was actually earlier than the term blazars was coined. So again, they're active galactic nuclei with a jet directed toward us. So the emissions dominated from this beamed region that appears very compact on the sky. And because the radio emission is so compact, Quasars, as well as varying intrinsically, can flicker in brightness due to the scattering of the radio waves by ionised material in the interstellar medium. Actually, the story of the recent paper goes back to some of my PhD work. So at the time, there was a big question mark over the origin of the rapid radio centimetre wavelength variability of some quasars. So was it intrinsic to the sources or was it a propagation effect of scintillation? So during my PhD, I found a source showing large amplitude brightness fluctuations, timescales, or very short timescales, less than an hour. And that was actually discovered with the Australia Telescope Compact Array. The Compact Array is an array of six parabolic 22-metre diameter dishes near Narrabri, New South Wales. The baselines can vary from from 25 metres up to six kilometres. So the antennas, five of the antennas move along a railway track. It's really a great instrument for measuring very accurate flux densities or intensities of the sources as well. So that's what we're using it for in this case uh, and at multiple frequencies across a broad wavelength range in the radio band. So anyway, the source I found was showing rapid fluctuations and we were able to show conclusively that it was due to interstellar scintillation rather than being intrinsic to the source. So we also showed that the scattering had to be due to these long, thin structures. And there's only a few such rapid variable sources known and some of them stop and start with their rapid variations, which makes it a bit hard to keep studying them. 
So that was work I did 15 years ago almost during my PhD. <laughs> More recently, since starting at CAS, I've been involved with a survey led by Keith Bannister and from a small, involved with a small team. And we were looking for extreme scattering events. So, so this is again a propagation effect in the interstellar medium that background quasars show some extreme fluctuations in their different wavelengths and in time due to some structure in the interstellar medium. What was responsible for these events was really a mystery. We didn't know what sort of things in the interstellar medium yep. were causing this and also how was it related to the normal interstellar scintillation, the other fast variations that we saw in some sources. And then a colleague, Mark Walker, who's the lead author on that paper you mentioned, well, first of all, <laughs> the Atiyazi survey, the Search for Extreme Scattering Events, found another rapidly fluctuating, rapidly varying source. Quasar. And it turned out we tried to get some optical data on the source. Colleague Vikram Ravi at Caltech had a look with Keck and discovered, hey, this source is really close to a bright star speaker. That makes it a bit hard to study in the optical one. Oh, yeah. So the speaker is a very nearby hot star. And the fact that this source was so close to it made our colleague Mark Walker think, well, perhaps there's some association between the scattering and between the hot star. So he revisited the data on two other quasars, the one that had been studied in my thesis and another source that had been studied by researchers in the Netherlands, interestingly. So he found that there was actually, in fact, one had already been associated to, or suggested to be associated possibly with the star Vega. And he also found that the source I'd looked at was possibly associated as in the elongated structure pointed towards a nearby star called Alkahim. These are stars within a few tens of light years that we're interested in. Essentially, we're talking about material that was within a region around the star that could be ionised by the hot star and causing the scattering. And the analogy that he uh, came up with is uh, is that the structures we're seeing might be quite similar to what's seen around the Helix Nebula, which is a a star near the end of its life, planetary nebula. Um, well, we see Hubble telescopes made these fabulous pictures of these cometary knots with, which are illuminated by the dying star with, with tails coming out <laughs> radially. And if there's similar structures, if this perhaps similar structures exist around main sequence stars with our thoughts. So, um, and it turns out that picture fits quite well with what we've observed in these scintillating quasars. So, at the moment, yeah, it's not proven, but the, it seems like the chances of finding these sources close to hot stars by chance is very unlikely. The the distance, but the distance of the stars and the pattern of the scintillation matches with what we might expect for scattering associated with material around these stars. So perhaps all stars actually have these uh, these blobs, and as, that is, they don't form towards the end of a star's life, but they're there perhaps, be, perhaps before the stars even form, that these, uh, these small molecular clumps uh, that then get ionised by the uh, radiation from the star. Fantastic detective work. Now, what direction will this research go in the future, please? Yeah, so the next step is, is to really, we would like to tie down and confirm this association between interstellar scintillation and material around hot stars. We found a couple of cases, but it's really not enough to, to say conclusively that we definitely have the answers now. So there's a, there's a lot of questions still. So we'd like to find a few more of these intra-hour variable quasars and measure annual cycles 
So I talk so uh, yeah, this this show time scale of the fluctuations actually varies with an annual cycle as the Earth orbits around the Sun. At one time of year, the Earth and the the scattering screen, if you like, are moving in opposite directions, and the variations will be very fast. And then six months later, they're moving almost parallel, and the variations will slow down. So we see this speed up and slow down in the fluctuations. Cool. Um, in some of these variables, and that allows us to really nail down the, the geometry of, of what's going on to some extent. So um, so if we can measure those annual cycles, we'll be able to show if, if we find, first of all, find more fast variables, measure annual cycles, we can show if they can be associated with a nearby hot star. Um, so we're proposing to use the compact array to do this. We have actually next week the time allocation committee for the compact array meets. I'm also the, the, the executive officer for that committee. So, um, so but I, of course I can't. I don't have a say in any the proposal outcomes, and uh, I have to leave the room for discussion of proposals that I'm on. So we have, but we'll see what the outcome is next week. And also, I have a we have a proposal in place to use ALMA, which is the Atacama Large Millimeter Array Array High in the Chilean Desert. Uh, that's to try and directly detect the the small molecular globules close to speaker. Speaker in uh, in with what well, to detect the carbon monoxide molecules in a millimeter sub millimeter regime. So uh, that proposal was quite highly rated. So the team uh, team's looking forward to to hopefully getting some data, some more data in the near future. Well, good luck with getting on the instrument. That reminds me, we like to come back to our feature interviews every 12 to 18 months, so I'll have to try and remember to ask you how scientists go about queuing up to get onto these key instruments. That's a whole area of its own. Yeah. Now, the microphone is all yours, Haley, and you have the opportunity to give us your favourite rant or rave about the challenges we face in science, in outreach, in women in STEM, in education, in radio astronomy or big data. The mic's all yours, Hayley. Okay, thanks, Brendan. Well, there's so much. It's hard to decide what to talk about <laughs> uh, and what I can really contribute. So I think I'll, I'll, I could just give a personal perspective. Um, so I feel, I feel that I'm lucky to be still involved with uh, and in touch with some exciting research going on in astrophysics and I'm also actually still able to spend most of my time at the moment at home with my two-year-old son so in a way I have the best of both worlds and I don't know if I'll be able to continue in astronomy in the longer term like, like many people because of job uncertainty so currently I'm actually employed on a casual basis which has been it's been great for me in terms of flexibility especially while my son is little but uh, I do hope to get a part-time contract in the near future so yeah again I I think that an astrophysics education can really provide quite flexible skills or in fact any STEM education. So I know very uh, several very smart and successful so-called extronomers, we call them, who, who are now utilising some of their skills in other fields outside of academia and, and perhaps even finding a better work-life balance than they would have otherwise. Um, unfortunately, also many talented people have to leave astronomy research not by their own choice. But uh, I guess I'm not as ambitious as some people, but, uh, yeah, I think I've decided there's no point worrying too much about the future. So I, I just try to do the best in what I do, even if a lot of the time I feel I'm just treading water. I'm sure a lot of other people feel this way, at least sometimes. So, But uh, aside from the varied career paths one can take, 
I feel that STEM education is a real privilege and it really gives gives you a sense of amazement at the discoveries that have been made in the past centuries and decades to do with everything from from life on Earth to technological developments and the vastness of the universe. So, um, so and a science education also helps to some extent to separate verified findings from dubious ones and lies and propaganda and so on. <laughs> seem to be subjected to. Um, but I think this wonders, wonder at the universe is sadly missing from a lot of people's lives. Uh, it doesn't have to come from, from science. But I think uh, the so-called distrust of science that's held by so many people is, is, uh, is disappointing. And I'm not quite sure what the answer is, but the, the jobs that you and others do to publicise science, I think, can only help. And so uh, it's a great thing to try to inspire people to learn more about uh, about how science works and, and what we've the amazing discoveries we've made in recent years. Well, thank you very much for conveying that sense of amazement of our wonderful universe. Well, thank you very much, Dr. Harley Bignall. It's been fabulous speaking with you. Thank you, Brendan. It's been a pleasure. Let's cross over to Adelaide now to hear what's up, Doc, and speak with Dr. Ian Musgrave. Hello, Ian. Hello, Brendan. It's great to be speaking with you again, Ian. Can you tell us what's up in the night sky this week? Well, what's up in the night sky this week? Well, one thing that's not up in the night sky this week is Mercury. Remember, Mercury has been our faithful companion for nearly four weeks now. Oh, yeah. Mercury has gone from being very high in the evening sky to rapidly returning to the horizon and in week Mercury now is setting before twilight. It's setting half an hour after the sun sets so it's going to be very difficult to see it in the twilight glow. Yep. The moon it returns to our evening skies as this broadcast goes out. The total solar eclipse in the United States will have uh, been completed and we'll be looking at and watching lots of images and videos of the moon being eclipsed throughout the United States. But while we're recovering from that, the moon's heading back into our evening skies. And on the 25th and the 26th, you're going to see something very beautiful. On the 25th, the crescent moon, Jupiter and the bright star speak at form a nice light in the evening sky yep. and that will be very nice to watch and then on the 26th the moon moves a bit further up and you will have a triangle of speaker Jupiter and the uh, waxing crescent moon so those two evenings you should see something very nice indeed excellent Jupiter's getting lower and lower in the evening sky so while it's still reasonably good in telescopes in the early evening your window of observation is narrower and narrower before it gets too close to the horizon and the horizon and the horizon turbulence makes imaging rather difficult. The moons will still be very good for quite some time, but uh, that window of opportunity good, clear telescopic imaging is narrowing as the heads towards the horizon. Uh, however, of course, that is uh, the telescope costs are lost, but it means that we get to see uh, more of the closing powers of Jupiter and the hidden crescent moon in the coming times. So you lose out on our telescopic views, we gain some more spectacular views as the moon and Jupiter line up in the evening. So if you're looking out to the west in the early evening, you'll be able to see Jupiter and the bright star speaker very close together. They've been edging closer together for the most of the night. Speaker and the moon, that'll look really spectacular. But the pair are looking very nice in the uh, western evening skies at the moment. 
Very good. If you take your gaze northward, Saturn is very high in the early evening sky, and on the 3rd of August, the waxing moon will be just below Saturn, and that will make another very nice sight. Unfortunately, it won't be close enough to fit into a decent telescope, but it's a very nice visual sight, and it's very easy to move from binoculars to Saturn, so you can catch the craters in, on the moon and the rings of uh, the uh, Overweight shape of Saturn in binoculars, and if you're playing around with telescopes, you can examine the moon to your leisure and then move up onto Saturn and be amazed by its rings. And then, of course, we have the morning sky. In the morning sky, Venus is now getting quite low to the horizon, and although it's rather still dominating early morning sky, it'll be harder and harder to see it in dark skies. It's now moving its way through constellation of Gemini. It will come quite close to a couple of dim stars you're watching over several days, but we won't have that rather spectacular appositions of Venus and bright stars that we've had before. In a telescope, Venus is looking uh, like a very definite waxing moon shape, a gibbous shape, so it's uh, definitely no longer a half-moon shape here. So it's still uh, reasonably interesting to look at in a telescope, but over the coming weeks, it's going to you know, get lower and lower in the twilight, and it'll become harder and harder to see, and then it will go behind the sun and return later uh, in the year as a, uh, a morn, as an evening will pick again. Okay. One thing that may happen, uh, for those of you who uh, follow the International Space Station, you may want to check your International Space Station predictions to see if you will see the International Space Station passing close to any of the uh, bright planets or the combinations of bright planets in the moon. Over the next few days uh, in Australia, unfortunately, most of the International Space Station passes are in the morning, so we, we don't get to see anything relatively spectacular. But for people throughout the world, just keep it on the International Space Station predictions, and there'd be something that would be really nice would be to see the International Space Station pass between Jupiter and the Crescent Moon, or Jupiter and Vega, if you're lucky enough to catch that. Meteor showers are now fizzling out, so you may see some uh, interesting meteors occasionally, but uh, there's no major meteor showers around at the moment. And to predict where the International Space Station is going to be, you'd recommend Heavens Above and Cal Sky? Uh, yes, indeed. Heavens Above is a very easy-to-use site and gives you uh, nice printable uh, maps. Cal Sky uh, has a little bit more of a complicated front end but can give you quite uh, sophisticated predictions. Either will do, either give you very nice predictions. So either Heavens Above or Cal Sky. And for those of you who are using Stellarium, if you've got the space, the uh, satellite app activated, you can also get predictions for the International Space Station and other satellites, which makes life a lot easier for plotting where it's going to be. And for people who like to get email alerts, CalSky does that very well. And you can customise it for certain kinds of things. For example, I have alerts set up so that when the International Space Station is very close to or passes over the moon or bright stars and planets, it will send me a special alert. Very good. And do you have a tangent for us for this episode, Ian? Yes, I do. Guess what? What? It's MU69 again. I don't want to make this MU69 all the time, every time. They've just recently released the actual occultation results. 
if you remember the last episode, I talked about the how this the uh, international occultation collaboration set up a telescope fence and they uh, detected the, the occultation and that there was still some discussion over what the exact shape of MU69 was and there was indications it was a, a very long and elongated shape. Well, now they've released the actual occultation track map, and you can see that the MU69 is definitely a two-lobed object. It may be very much like the rubber duck shape of 67P, or it may be two objects in very close uh, opposition rotating around each other. But whatever it is, it's definitely a two-lobed shape, and will be extraordinarily interesting to see as the New Horizons goes past. The number of weird and wonderful objects that are out there lurking in the outer solar system uh, or even in the inner solar is truly amazing. So this will be a very interesting encounter. Wow, it'll be fantastic watching that data come through when New yes. Horizon reaches it. When does New Horizon reach this target? reaches it in early 2018. It won't be too much longer now. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Ian Astroblog Musgrove. Thank you very much, Brendan. I hope everyone has clear skies to see the wonders of our heavens. Okay, take care, Ian. See you, mate. All right. Here is the Astrophys News for Thursday, the 24th of August, 2017. Okay, normally we would not report on something that's been announced by press release because science has been burnt before by press releases. So normally we report on things that have been reported in a journal and are backed up by peer-reviewed papers. You might remember in 1989 Martin Fleischmann and Stanley Pons reported on an apparatus that they claimed to produce cold fusion. And that was science via press release and it turned out to be less than accurate. Likewise, there was the press release from Andre Rossi announcing the production of the ECAT. And it wasn't peer-reviewed and they are still selling ECATs to people. And I'm afraid the science is not backing it up at all. So science via press release is a little bit on the nose. And it's all about two conflicting forces. There is a great desire among scientists to be the first to announce a breakthrough. But there is also the conservative nature and the reluctance of scientists to make pronouncements without the evidence to back it up. Now I'm going to report now from an article in New Scientist, which is a very reputable online source of usually peer-reviewed science. But we're going to hear now, not science by press release, but science by tweet. Perhaps that's the world we're moving into. So, from New Scientist. Exclusive. We may have detected a new kind of gravitational wave. If true, this is phenomenal. It's by Mika McKinnon. Have we detected a new flavour of gravitational wave? Speculation is swelling that researchers have spotted the subtle warping of the fabric of space resulting from the cataclysmic collision of two neutron stars. Now, optical telescopes, including Hubble, are scrambling to point at the source of a possible wave, an elliptical galaxy hundreds of millions of light years away. 
Gravitational waves are markers of the most violent events in our universe, generated when dense objects such as black holes or neutron stars crash together with tremendous energy. Two experiments, LIGO in the US and Virgo in Europe, set out to detect minuscule changes in the path of laser beams caused by passing gravitational waves. LIGO has discovered three gravitational wave sources so far, all of them colliding black holes. The two observatories have been coordinating data collection since November last year, increasing their sensitivity. That collaboration may be about to pay off. Last weekend, astronomer J. Craig Wheeler of the University of Texas at Austin launched speculation over a potential new LIGO detection by tweeting, New LIGO, source with optical counterpart, blow your socks off. By optical counterpart, he probably meant that astronomers could observe light emitted by the gravitational wave source. This suggests the source is neutron stars. Unlike black holes, neutron stars can be seen in visible wavelengths. LIGO researchers have long speculated and anticipated this possibility, setting up partnerships with optical observatories to rapidly follow up on potential signals prior to formally announcing a discovery. LIGO spokesperson David Schumacher dodged confirming or denying the rumours, saying only a very exciting observing run is drawing to a close on August 25th. That's tomorrow. We look forward to posting a top-level update at that time. Speculation is focused on NGC 4993, a galaxy about 130 million light-years away in the Hydra constellation. Within it, a pair of neutron stars are entwined in a deadly dance. While astronomers are staying silent on whether they are engaged in optical follow-ups to a potential gravitational wave detection, last night the Hubble Space Telescope turned its focus to a binary neutron star merger within that exact galaxy. A publicly available image of this merger was later deleted. If LIGO and Virgo really have picked up the gravitational waves of colliding neutron stars, it might explain why collaborator Andy Howe mused earlier in the week. Tonight is one of those nights where watching the astronomical observations roll in is better than any story any human has ever told. So we'll probably follow up on this story. Science by tweet. That's it for this week. See you in two weeks. Radio Wave!